Uh, what's going on, Salt Company? How are we doing tonight? Awesome. And I'm incredibly humbled, flattered, honored to be with you tonight. If we've not met before, my name is Cody Klein. I'm not typically here on Thursday nights. Uh, I'm, I'm more on the Sunday morning stage here at Candeo. And uh, yeah, I'm one of the pastors here. I'm just grateful to be here with you tonight. Uh, I, I think this is kind of a fun moment because um, typically when I'm at Salt Company, I'm sitting in your seat somewhere often in the back of the room. And when I'm watching Trent or Shay lead, Anna and Mason and Kelsey and Logan and, you know, Rachel and, and just the whole team, uh, Andy as well, like when I'm watching them lead, I just so often want to go up and just grab the microphone and be like, they are so awesome. Don't you love your staff team? And I never get a chance to do it. But tonight I get the microphone. So I get to celebrate your Salt Company staff. Can we just thank them for all that they do? They work so hard for this ministry. I'm so grateful for them. Yeah, I'm so incredibly proud of every member of the team. I think for me, like the greatest compliment you could ever give somebody is to say, if you became just like them someday, that would be great. And that's the joy that I have, that I would tell you with full confidence, pick any member of that staff team, if you became just like them and were marked by the humility that marks their life, the, the gentleness, the joy that marks their life, their devotion to Christ and their commitment to live with open hands and all that God would call them to, if you lived just like them, that would be amazing. And uh, I'm so grateful for your team. So I get a moment to celebrate some of my favorite people. I also wanna take a moment to introduce you to some of my favorite people. So here's a picture of some of my favorite people in the whole world. Uh, this is my crew, this is my family. Uh, so there on the right, that's my bride of 17 years. So we just celebrated 17 years of marriage, it's wild. Um, cooler, I mean, just as cool as that though, it, it's gonna be November 4th here will be a 20 year anniversary of a Thursday night after Salt Company, when we were both students, that I was with her when she gave her life to Christ as a freshman. And so if you've got friends that are freshmen on campus that aren't here tonight and are out doing other things, my wife was marked by tons of regret over her first couple of months of college and uh, took me up on an invitation to come out to Salt Company on a Thursday night did that a few times in a row, and I watched God soften her heart and win her over. And uh, had no idea then that beautiful girl would become my bride, but it, it's wild, it's a beautiful journey. So we love Salt Company forever, grateful for Salt Company in our own lives. So that's my wife there on the far right. Uh, I'm gonna go like, you know, continue right to left. So next to her is Trevor, that's my nine, almost 10 year old. Uh, next to him is our oldest, Jacoby, so he's 13. Uh, on the far left here is our other son, Caden, and then my favorite, obviously, uh, the one girl on the whole mix, she's got me wrapped around her finger. I mean, I, again, I got three boys, never thought we would have a girl. I was done having kids when we had three. I was overwhelmed. I was doing the math on like how much groceries it were gonna cost when I got three teenage boys. And my wife said, I wanna have another. And I said, I don't even wanna consider that. And <laughs> We had an argument, she won, obviously. And so she'll regularly look at Bailey when we're just delighting in each other because my daughter's still at that age, right? Talk to her and I say, so do you wanna get married someday? And she'll go, yeah. And I go, who do you, who do you wanna marry? Like, who's the guy? And she's like, you, <laughs> you know? So she's still in that phase and my wife will be like, remember, she was my idea. I'm like, I got it, yeah. 
Uh, so that's, that's my crew. If you're curious, like, so what does a pastor do on a typical Thursday night? Uh, like I am in the time of my life where every Thursday night and th like Thursday night's like the perfect storm of it where I am in like football, soccer dad mode, like constantly, like where I'm driving my van around town, just getting people to practice is we have four kids. We had five practices tonight, three for football, one for soccer and one for baseball. So it's just wild and chaotic, but I absolutely love my life, love my family. So I got to celebrate some of my favorite people. I got to uh, introduce you to some of my favorite people. Now let me tell you something that's true about me, okay? Guys, I am who I am by the grace of God and the people that God has put into my life. I am who I am by the grace of God and because of the people that God has brought into my life. God used Shane Roethlisberger when I was a 15-year-old to share the gospel with me. And not just once, guys, I was a slow convert. But Shane patiently and persistently both proclaimed the gospel and then just displayed it through his just gentleness with me, answering all my dumb questions, watching me live recklessly with my life and continue to pursue me time and time again that over the course of about a year saw me one to Christ. And not only did God use Shane, he had used grandparents and parents that before I was even born were praying for me that someday I would trust Christ. I feel like I am who I am today is a large part because of their prayers. God used a guy named Mike Easton who was the first person outside of Shane to take me under his wing and disciple me. I'll never forget sitting in a dining center in Iowa State University and Mike sitting me down and going, Cody, if you could start making decisions based on what you know rather than how you feel, God may actually be able to use you in this world. It's like outside of my conversion, that moment was one of the most powerful moments of my life when God took those words, cut me to the heart, and I knew I had no self-control, no ability to take what I was seeing in God's word and hold myself to the spot of actually following through with it, what that looks like. God used two men, Troy Nesbitt and Jeff Dodge, who became like fathers for me to show me what it looked like to love my wife, lead my family, shepherd a flock of people. More recently, God used uh, a couple of men in my life, Ben and Scott, to just create space for me to confess sin, for them to even draw me out a bit, to then remind me of the gospel and pray over me. In one of the most discouraging seasons of my life, God used a guy named Stan who came in at the critical moment in a really dark hour. And I don't even know, guys, if I would still be a pastor today if it hadn't been for his friendship. You know, even on a fun side, God uses this group of guys that I'm a part of. We call ourselves the pizza club. Um, but once a month, we pick some random place. Like we, we've got like a list of all these pizza joints somewhere within an hour and 15 minutes of here that we wanna knock off our list. And we're on the search for the best slice of pie. That's what we're, we're in for. So we're about seven pizza restaurants in. If you want like a hot tip, like here's, here's like off the beaten path. You go down to Treyer. Anybody from like Treyer in this? Like there's a place out there called the Pizza Palace. Dumpy location. Like it don't, it's not like locations. Like if there's like a five-star review, it's like a half star. They got a chicken cordon bleu pizza. It doesn't sound good, but it is awesome. <laughs> of everything we've had so far, that's the best piece. 
But I love that group of guys. Like, it's just a place where, like, we let our guards down and laugh together, right? But, I, again, it goes back to, like, what I was saying. Like, I am, and, and this will be true on the day that I'm on my deathbed. I will say the same thing on that day. I am who I am because of the grace of God and the people that God has brought into my life. And that's why I love tonight that we're talking about essentials, right? The essentials of Salt Company, the essentials of, like, I would say even of life, right? And one of those essentials we, we cannot miss is that we need people. We need people. But here's the problem. We need community. We need people. Sadly, a lot of people don't have people. Here's what I mean. Uh, if you look out into the world, it's pretty easy to spot often like global crises, right? Like a famine, right? Famines are easy to spot because you know that there's an essential need for food. And when there's a shortage of it, you can see it's like a sea of people walking around who are nothing but skin and bones and go, oh, this isn't right. Or if there's like a plague that's taking place, right? You, there's a disease that's ravaging a particular country or something like that, that that's moving globally and there's no cure for it. And so what you see is just those pictures of video footage of just rows of hospital beds and people dying, you know, side by side. Like you see that and you can go like, this isn't the way it's supposed to be. Sometimes it's easy to spot certain crises but miss others. Because we have right now currently in our globe another invisible crisis. We have over 8 billion people on this planet that call it home. More people than have ever called the earth home at one time. In fact, overpopulation by some people's standards is an actual issue. We're more connected socially than ever before thanks to the internet. And yet, guys, understand this. A recent study done on Generation Z, your age, 18 to 22-year-olds, 73% said that they are lonely always or sometimes. We're surrounded by people and yet never been more lonely. And it's not just limited to the United States. This is, this is astounding to me. You know, in Japan, you actually can now find rent of family services to give you the illusion of intimacy and warmth. Or even in like South Korea, they've had such an issue with people being reclusive and withdrawn that the government is now paying people in your stage of life to leave their homes and interact with other people. We're lonely, we're lonely. As essential as food and medicine is for us to flourish, so too is community. And you gotta understand that's exactly the way God designed it. Okay, if you have a Bible, just go to the first page. Can you go with me there? We're gonna get into John 13 in just a second, but go to the first page of your Bible. I wanna highlight something for you. Because our need for community is a legitimate one. God designed us this way. So you go to the first page of your Bible, the first words of your Bible. Just take note of this. We're just gonna read a little bit. I'm gonna have you, if you have a pen, just underline a couple of words here in just a second. Here's what it says. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Do we all find the first page? We're good. I see. So here's some pages flipping. All right, you got it? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness covered the surface of the watery depths, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the water. And then God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light, now underline this, was good. Okay, underline that, was good. So what takes place there is God begins 
creation. He begins pulling the world together. And what we'll see is he continues in creation is he then creates land and water and the sky and moon and stars and birds and fish and animals. And seven times in total, seven times over the course of that chapter, you will see him say about what he's created. He'll look at it and go, it's good. Seven times he'll do that. It's good. It's good. It's good. It's good. It's good. It's good. It's very good. 49 verses into your Bible, you get the first not good statement. It's meant to catch you because everything that God has created at that point is good. 49 verses into your Bible, we get the first not good statement. Do you know what it is? It's Genesis 2.18. Read it. Just in your heads. It's on the screen. Then the Lord said, it's not good for man to be alone. See, what's going on in Genesis 2 is like Genesis 1 was like a flyover of creation, but Genesis 2 kind of zooms in a bit just purely on how God created mankind. And what you see is that man and woman weren't created at the same time. There was a time when God had created Adam, but there's no Eve. And he looks at that and he says, this isn't good for him to be alone. Can I ask you an interesting question? Is Adam alone? I mean, I know Eve's not there. I just said that, right? But like, but who is there? God. Like, Adam's got God. So interestingly enough, right, Adam's got God. And haven't you heard your whole life that as long as you've got God in your life, you have everything that you need, correct? And yet God looks at it, and he has full relationship with Adam. There's no sin in the world. They're good. They're on great terms. And yet God looks at it and goes, it's not good for him to be alone. You have to understand like the profound reality of what's being stated there. There is a legitimate need, a desire that we have, a craving that is hardwired within us that longs for community, companionship, that God alone cannot fill. We're hardwired with a desire to be with people. It's in how God created us. If you go back into Genesis 1, it says that God created us in his image. And if you know who God is and you know what God is like, you know this, right? That God exists as three persons, yet one God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. God is community personified, three in one. And so when God creates us in his image, we are hardwired like him to flourish best in the midst of community, to love deep companionship. And God can meet this need, this, this craving that we have for companionship in a variety of ways and, and marriage and in the church and in friends and in family, but it's always through people. There's never been a substitute for it. Not an AI girlfriend or boyfriend or some like social media interactions. We know that, right? Like Zoom does not replace face-to-face intimacy and interaction. So when I hear somebody say, I don't need people, or I begin to watch somebody withdraw from community and become reclusive, I don't see strength, I see brokenness. Does that make sense? We need community. But now I want to use John 13 to show you what community is supposed to look like, the way that Jesus wants it to look like. So John 13, 
even if you're like new to Christianity, is a pretty familiar scene. Because what's going on in, in John 13 is Jesus is just hours away from the cross. He's gathered up his closest friends. They eat some food together. They sing some songs together. They're enjoying time together. And in the midst of that time, Jesus at a certain point in the meal, he takes off his outer robe, grabs a towel, wraps it around his waist, and he lowers himself and begins to wash his disciples' feet. I think you know the moment, but I, I want to just read a portion of this. Because it says in verse 6 that he came to Simon Peter who asked him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what I'm doing you don't realize now, but afterward you will understand. And he says, you'll never wash my feet, Peter said. I mean, you got to understand that like the cultural moment here, like there's nothing more demeaning in that cultural moment than for a person to wash another person's feet. In fact, it was so demeaning that if you had slaves, servants in your household, you couldn't even tell them to wash your feet. It was like against the cultural rules. And so it's just blowing Peter's mind that here Jesus is, who they call Lord, Master, and he's washing their feet, something they wouldn't even ask a servant to do. Because it's so gross. It's so demeaning. So he says to, to Jesus, you'll never wash my feet, Peter said. And Jesus replied, if I don't wash you, you have no part with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, then not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. One who has bathed, Jesus told him, doesn't need to wash anything except his feet. But he is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. For he knew who would betray him. That is why he said... Not all of you are clean. I, I don't want you to, to miss this because this is the foundational truth that we celebrate the most as Christians, like on display. And, and I want you to catch it. We call this the gospel. But it's seen in Jesus' conversation with Peter. Understand this. Every one of us, apart from Christ, just by ourselves, is defined by shame, brokenness, and sin. And we have to be washed clean. That's like step one of the gospel is realizing that we have to be washed clean. That's why when Peter says to him, you will never wash my feet. And Jesus replies, if I don't wash you, you have no part with me. Like you can see the gospel in this moment, can't you? Like the first step, like a key part in accepting Christ is first humbling yourself to realize you need him. It's realizing I can't do this on my own. I can't clean myself up. I need you to wash me clean. And when we trust Christ, when we place our faith in Christ, what happens is that the blood of Christ washes away our sin. But notice then what Simon Peter says. He says, well, Lord, then not only wash my feet, but my hands and my head, which sounds great, right? This sounds, this is a beautiful moment on Peter's part. Then then wash all of me. I need it so bad. And then catch what Jesus says. One who has bathed, Jesus told him, doesn't need to wash anything except his feet, but he is completely clean. I want you to miss this. What he's saying there is that, yes, every person needs to have that moment in their life where they trusted Christ for the first time, and in that they are completely washed from head to toe. That their sins, though they were red as crimson, they are now washed white as snow. It's a song that we sing around here. We need that. Everybody needs that. That happened for me when I was 15 years old. 
We all need a full washing. But then from there, we don't need to keep going back to that full washing moment. What we do need, though, is we need some spot cleaning. That there's times we then, as we walk through life, we need to continue to live in a posture of repentance and confession to acknowledge, yes, Lord, I, I trusted in you and have trusted in you, but I still continue to sin and do wrong and to confess those things and let Jesus continue to wash us. You understand? A full washing and spot cleaning. Does that make sense? So you see the gospel on display and then what it looks like to live in a posture, continue to let Jesus wash you and continue to keep you clean. So now maybe you're asking, so what does this have to do with community? Pick up in verse 12 now with me. Notice what he says here then. When Jesus had washed their feet and put on his outer clothing, he reclined again and said to them, do you know what I've done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're speaking rightly since that is what I am. So if I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do just as I have done. Pause for a moment, look back at that. What do you think he's trying to tell them? See, I don't think he's, he's telling them just like literally that you should now like literally like wash each other's feet, that that's what you should do like over and over again in life. I mean, I think that there's a big theme there that's in place that yes, we should approach one another with a humble attitude, right? That I should enter into relationship with you and seek your good, right? And I would meet your needs and things like that. But I, I don't think he's, he's talking purely about just a humble attitude or just purely about washing somebody's feet. What do you think? I think what Jesus is wanting is he's wanting his people to be the type of people who would lower themselves, not just to meet each other's physical needs, their mental and emotional needs, but to meet each other's spiritual needs. To look around you and to recognize that I have brothers and sisters in this room who have been washed clean by the blood of Christ but they need me to enter into life with them and to wash their feet, to do some spot cleaning. What do I mean in all this? Remember I was telling you about my friend Ben that I met with last week that created space for me to confess sin, draw me out. I think what he's asking for us to do here and how we should be washing each other's feet is what Ben did for me last week. See, when I sat down with Ben, Ben knows me, he's my friend. He knows my strengths and my weaknesses. And in the course of conversation last week, at one point, Ben looked at me and he said, hey, how are you doing this week just with impatience and anger? Have you had any outbursts of anger? That for me, sadly, is one of my biggest and ongoing sins, just impatience, frustration, anger, things like that. And he just was asking, how did this week go? Created some space for me to talk about just some victories and some losses over the past week drew me out in confession and repentance of those sins, pointed me to the gospel and prayed over me. He was loving me by washing my feet. Does that make sense? What Jesus' desire was in creating the church was that he would establish an upside-down community where, where we wouldn't look at it and the aim would be like, how do I lead? But like you, you'd come into it and go, no, how do I serve? 
right? That, that leadership is a servant leadership. Jesus' desire in building the church was to build this upside-down community that would be a blood-bought people, that what brings us together, what bonds us is bigger than anything that would separate us because the blood of Christ over us is bigger than any barrier that would rise up between us. That what defines us is not our race or our history or our hometown or our major, but what defines us is that we all have a common confession, that I am a sinner saved by grace through faith, and Jesus Christ is my only boast. That's what brings us together. But a blood-bought people in an upside-down kingdom that seeks not their own good, but seeks the good of others and lays their life down in a desire to see the other person find greater joy, purity, freedom in Christ. That's what he wanted when he was building his church. And you see it here when he models it for them and he says, what you've seen me do for you, do for each other. That's what true community is meant to look like. Because we need community. And Jesus wants us to have the best and most beautiful kind of community. I'm going to let you know a few secrets. Because if you want this type of community, you're going to have to make four purposeful trades in your life. You're going to have to make four purposeful decisions to say, okay, I want the type of community that Jesus wants for me. What do I have to do to get it? Here's four trades you got to make. Here's number one. You must trade selfishness for selflessness. I think that's pretty clear from this text, right? But if you think about it, most community that you walk into in your campus environments, most community you walk into, everybody's entering into it with the same attitude. They're walking into it going, what am I going to get out of this? This club, this thing, this team, what am I going to get out of this? That's the primary question. The best community you could ever find yourself in is not surrounded by a bunch of people looking across the room going, what am I going to get out of this? You want to find people that walk into a space that call this their community that are going, what can I give? Not what can I get? See, this is one of those things where you actually get what you want by aiming at something else. That if you walk into a connection group environment and go, well, what's in it for me? What am I going to get out of this? You'll probably get nothing. But if you walk into that environment going, what can I give? What has God given me that I can offer to this group that would help to build up every person around me? You come in with that posture, you will find yourself in a life-transforming group of people. True community requires inconvenience. You can't get around it. And so if you're just going to sit back and go, well, I'm, I'm just waiting for somebody to text me. I'm just going to hang out over here until somebody comes over and grabs me and pulls me into their group. I'm, I'm not initiating that. It's probably not going to happen for you. If you want the community that Jesus wants for you, You have to trade selfishness for selflessness and embrace inconvenience and make that move. Thinking, what can I give, not what can I get? Second trade you got to make. You must trade superficial relationships for real relationships. This blew my mind, but when I was doing some studies on just like the loneliness epidemic and all of that, 
you know, one of the things that most people will point to that they're like, I think this is what's contributing so much to your generation's just loneliness is how much time we're spending on a fake medium for relationship, the social connectedness world. Did you know that over the course of your life, if you live like 75, 80 years, like an average human life, did you know that at the rate that you're going, you will spend 21 years, four months and 29 days online? At the rate that you're at, 21 years, four months and 29 days of your life will be spent online with a fake substitute for real stuff. If you want real community, you have to trade the superficial relationships that you're tracing right now for what is real. And I'm not just talking about online interactions. I'm also talking about maybe your fluffy superficial relationships with your like intramural kickball team too. Like you, you have to go, I want what's real, not what's superficial. And guys, I'm not, I'm not trying to be hard on this. Like, I've got tons of friends with people who don't know Christ and I don't have deep relationships with them, okay? Because the reality is, if you're not willing to talk with me about Jesus, if I can't let my guard down around you, if we can't be real about our sin, if I can't at any moment just pray with you for God's name to be made great among the nations, we may be able to be friends, but we're not gonna be like the best of friends, you know what I mean? Because the people that I'm drawing myself to, that I'm spending the most time with to go deepest with, are people that I can do that with. Does that make sense? Because true community, life-changing community requires depth. It just does. It requires depth. And so maybe in the junior high lunchroom environment, you know, you got the smart people that sit over here in this group and you got the athletes that sit over here and it's, it's all defined by affinities and who does what and who's into what. Guys, again, the church, what it does is it brings together a very different and unique type of people that don't share maybe much in common, but what they share is a common devotion to Christ. Like if you, if you continue reading in your Bibles, you can read about this like in Acts 2. In Acts 2, you have this beautiful moment where Jesus has now left earth, gone to heaven, poured out his spirit on his people, and the church is born in Acts 2. What you see is 3,000 people in one day after Peter preaches the gospel, come to know Christ and get baptized, all in one day. People from every nation under the sun, they didn't speak the same language. Now all bought by Jesus and brought into a family, the church is born. And what it says in Acts 2, verses like 41 through 47, is that they devoted themselves to God's word, to fellowship, spending time together, to, to eating food together, and to prayer. And they continued to meet every day together. They delighted in that relationship. They were committed to one another. And remind yourself of this. They didn't share anything else in common. They didn't even share a common language. What they shared was a common love for Christ, that common confession. That's what brought them together. What Jesus brings together, it's deeper than affinities. And if you have this in common, that in common, whatever. You got Jesus in common, we can talk about that. We can be the deepest and richest of friends. But you have to, you have to move away from the superficial into what's real. To true friends. That also highlights this, 
third thing you have to trade is you're going to have to be willing to trade perfect people, which there are no perfect people. There's like fake perfect people. But you have to be willing to trade perfect people for imperfect people. If you want true community, you have to know going into it that anything involving human beings is going to be flawed and you're going to experience that at some point. Even jumping into the deepest of communities with some of the greatest people that God has brought together, you're still going to have moments where you get hurt. Somebody disappoints you, lets you down. Maybe you're pursuing them with love and they're not reciprocating. You're going to experience that. Because not only does true community require depth and inconvenience, it also requires grace. Sometimes we can enter into a community with expectations that are so high, it actually suffocates and kills real community with imperfect people in front of you. You need to find community with people who love people with dirty feet and help them get their feet clean. And you need to enter into a community with a love for people with dirty feet and want to help them get their feet clean. Does that make sense? And I'm not telling you to like stay in a toxic relationship or a toxic community. Like that, that happens and there's times that we sometimes need to move on, but don't ever throw the baby out with the bathwater. You still need community. Just find people defined by grace because true community requires it. Fourth thing, you guys tracking with me? Are we doing all right? So fourth thing you gotta trade if you want true community is you have to trade what's temporary for what's eternal. Again, I'm not saying this like don't ever hang out with non-Christians. Like, I, I hang out with lots of people who don't know Christ and have genuine relationship with them because I want to see them come to know Christ. But there's a difference in my priorities in life, right? Because true community will require you to switch your priorities and move away from the temporary things to what's eternal. There's kind of this, this fun story that I, I, I can't, Forget, you know, again, how God uses people to speak timely words into your life. This one happened once in what was, I thought, maybe going to be one of the best moments of my life. But when I was a college student, Iowa State did the unthinkable. They won a football game. And what was wild is we beat Nebraska, which at that time, like, like never happened. And so we, we were beating Nebraska for like the first time in, I think, ever. I don't, I, think, I don't think we'd ever beaten them before. And that night we were beating them. And as the clock's ticking down, like the students and like all the spectators are starting to crowd around the field. And it's like, we're going to storm the field. So there's this weird moment where, you know, I'm on the hillside. I'm ready to go on out there and storm the field. I didn't have my shoes on. I don't remember what was going on. So I like, I was, I was bent over. I was like tying my shoes on. And right as I was about to stand up and run out into the field, this voice from like over my shoulder from who was at that time, my salt company director, Paul Sabino, he just goes, man, isn't this so sad? And I was completely confused. You know, so I tie my shoe. I'm like, what? what? What's that? And he's like, all these people wanting to live for something greater than themselves, and tonight they think it's Iowa State football. And I stood up and looked at him and I was like, totally. As if, like, I wasn't going to be one of those people. I don't think I've ever told Paul that. 
Guys, if you want to live your life for something that matters, if you want to live your life for something that counts, you figure out what Jesus cares the most about and you, you get on the same page as him. And here's what Jesus told Peter. He said, Peter, I'm building my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. If you wanna know what Jesus gives his time to, what's, what's worth his energies, he's building the church. And now I'm not talking about buildings, I'm talking about people, people who know Christ. That's where he spends his time and his investment. And that's what, if you wanna make your life count, you spend it in the way that Jesus would spend it. There's a reason why Jesus calls the church his bride. If I call something my bride, it's a big deal to me. If he calls something his bride, it's a big deal to him. And I want to lay my life down for his bride to continue to look at each of you as we interact with each other and to figure out how do I continue to just wash your feet and serve you. True community requires you to change your priorities and to value what's eternal over what's temporary to be committed to a group of believers. Because I don't know about you, but I think if we had communities, right, that were defined by this, people who were coming into it going, what can I give rather than what can I get? It's real, it's deep, right? It's not, it's not measured by perfection, but it's people that are, are marked by grace that, that interact with people who are imperfect but continue to serve and love one another who are bonded together for all of their life. You find that type of community, don't you think that would be pretty powerful in this world? Because the most evangelistic thing I think we could do is to create communities that look like this. This is the journey that we're on at Canadale Church, that I want you to be a part of it as college students, guys. This is a church, a multi-generational church that is all about cheering on your generation to see you thrive. And I want you to look at people like us and to not go, they're old, but to look at people like us and go, man, I can see God's work in their life and I wanna be just like them someday when I get to be 40, 50, 60, 70. I look at people around our church that are in their 70s and 80s and I'm like, I wanna live like that. We wanna invite you into a community that is marked by these things and encourage you to help create it with each other. In this ministry alone, you guys know this, there are 96 student leaders, 43 connection groups. Across our church as a whole, we have 236 servant leaders and 101 connection groups for a church body of about 1,200 people. One of the things we say is that we're not a church with small groups. We are a church of small groups because while this is fun to gather in a big setting and have some teaching, to pray together, to sing together, and that's great, it's also important for us to be known, to break into smaller groups, to do life together, to encourage one another on because it's in that context that life transformation takes place because we need it. We need each other. And so I want to invite you into something that's special. Not just at Kendale, I'm talking about at your level with your peers to do something unique within your own connection group. That I think if that connection group formed in Ryder Hall, I think it'd be the most powerful thing that hit UNI's campus this year. That if there was a connection group marked by these things, depth, imperfect people covered by grace, 
loving each other even though it's inconvenient, valuing time together over anything else, I think that would be evangelistic and powerful at Wartburg, at Hawkeye, or wherever you're at. So thanks for listening to me for a night. Can I pray for us? Yeah. Yeah, God, you're so good. And I could rattle off a thousand other names, that just people, normal people that you have used to make me who I am. And that's not just true for me, it's true for everybody in this room. God, we are who we are by your grace and because of the people that you brought into our lives. And so, God, I pray that each person in this room tonight, God, if there's 73% of Gen Z would say that they're lonely, then no doubt many in this room know what it's like to be lonely. I pray that that wouldn't be true a year from now. And so it's gonna require us to move, to make some choices. To not just sit back and wait and go, well, what's in it for me? But to go, okay, I recognize I need this community and to pursue it, to create it, to link up arms with those around me to my right and to my left and say, let's not have superficial relationships where we talk about this. I want to talk about real things. I want to talk about what's really going on in my life. I want to continue to offer one another grace when we fail each other, even though it'd be prone to like brokenness and bitterness and I want to push you away. I'm going to continue to pursue you with love. To have something beautiful to invite people into. Because God, community is powerful. It's how you saved me was through people and it's how you want to save the next person on our campus.